Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 320th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jim Dixon. Jim is the CEO and founder of Sanctuary Wealth, an RIA platform with 80 partner firms in 29 states that collectively oversee nearly $25 billion in assets under management. What's unique about Jim, though, is how he has built an RIA platform approaching $25 billion in AUM in just five years, and the way he's managed everything from hiring and staffing to raising outside investor capital in order to make the investments necessary to achieve scale as a middle and back office support platform for independent advisors. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Jim built Sanctuary's partnered independence platform for advisors who want to run their own practices serving high net worth clients while leveraging Sanctuary's wealth support system with technology, compliance, practice management, training groups, digital marketing, and even an ultra high net worth family office support system. How Jim created Sanctuary's unique partnership structure where the advisor practices are their own LLCs but also our IARs under the corporate RA, so Sanctuary can help the practices maintain their independence for ownership and tax efficiently, but rely on Sanctuary for their compliance needs. And how, because many wirehouse advisors were used to having access to all their data and systems from one centralized workstation, Jim and Sanctuary built their own centralized data warehouse called Haven, and then layered a third-party business intelligence tool called Domo on top so each advisor could get their own level of business intelligence and benchmark how their practices are really doing. We also talk about why, after 25 years, Jim left the wirehouse world, and due to a non-compete and non-solicit agreement, took a year-long trip around the world and along the way had the realization of the sanctuary opportunity to launch his own advisor platform for independence and partnership that he thought old wirehouse advisors really wanted and needed. Why Sanctuary owns a stake in some of the firms they partner with is Jim found that there were some advisors who wanted to take at least a few chips off the table or were interested in an equity swap so they could grow with a small piece of a much larger pie instead of being solely independent on growing their own. And how now that Sanctuary Wealth is transformed into a nationwide partnership, Jim is working through the challenges of rapid growth when an advisor platform has to hire dozens of people every year and needs to ensure the teams are not only diverse with experience, but have the right people to move the company forward at its current stage of growth and evolution. And be certain to listen to the end where Jim shares how, despite working in the wirehouse world for over two decades, he was surprised by how large the demand for independence is from advisors as more and more are seeking the autonomy to control their clients' investment and platform experience, and most importantly, their own destinies. Why Jim credits his highly structured daily schedule as the way that he stays disciplined in conducting daily calls with partners, staying in touch with what's happening within the platform, and reaching out to advisors who could potentially join Sanctuary's network, while still making time to be present in his kids' lives and never missing one of their sports events. And why Jim feels the key to success is the relationships he's built on the Sanctuary platform, as it's the one thing to build a large firm, but another to build it with people you like and trust who all enjoy what they do and truly care about the people the business was built to serve. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jim Dixon. Welcome, Jim Dixon, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, my pleasure. I'm I really appreciate you joining us today and and I'm really looking forward to the conversation of talking about advisor platforms and and what it means to really grow an advisor platform quickly. You know, I feel like there's been this sort of emerging phenomenon over the past 10 years of just a, a new wave of advisor platforms, advisor networks. I, I feel like it's kind of the natural extension of, you know, first we had the mega national firms, right? The wirehouses and the yep. like. Then the then we we kind of birthed the independent broker dealer channel and some advisors started shifting from employee models to to independent models. But you know, even if you're independent, most of us don't really, really want to literally go at it entirely alone. Like we still tend to have some sort of platform that provides some compliance tech infrastructure, other services. So we went from like employee models at wirehouses to independent broker dealers as platforms that then grew very, very big. Then we started morphing into the RIA world. And I feel like the past 10 years has really been the story of the growth of the RIA platform that, you know, is similar in many ways to independent broker dealers and and uh, and national platforms, but little different for the independence model and what's offered and just you know what what you can do when you don't have FINRA in there because you're not focused on the product distribution side. But one of the interesting things to me about this this shift in the waves of platforms is just because the advisor space continues to 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 grow and thrive, I feel like every time we go through another wave of platforms, like the new wave of platforms grows even faster. Like it took 30 plus years for independent broker dealers to become big, but a lot of independent RA platforms are getting there in like 10 years. And just when you take 30 years of growth and you cram it into 10 years, it makes for a certain level of crazy. Uh just yes. you know, it's it's neat to say, hey, we had this fast growing business and we added billions of dollars and and dozens or hundreds of staff. But for anyone that's ever really like been through the process of that kind of hiring and scaling up, like there's a special sort of crazy that happens behind the scenes in just what that really looks like and how to hold it together. And and so I know you you've done a version of that journey. And so while I want to talk a little bit about just literally like the platform that you've that you built and and how you're operating in that RA platform space. I'm also looking forward to just talking a little bit about like what it's really like when an organization grows by billions or tens of billions of dollars in in five to ten years and just what that what that actually looks like behind the scenes. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And and I, I laugh sometimes because you know I, I call it, we live in the Instagram world, so everybody sees all the posts on Instagram and in our in our probably world LinkedIn, and they they see how everything is great, but they don't realize the the scrapes and bruises and blood that that it takes to get there, and that really is the norm. And Sanctuary is no different, you know. Look, we we you know yes, we're we're approaching. Uh, $25 billion in AUM in, in four and a half, five years. Um, but we had to build it, right? And as we build it, uh, we got a lot of things right. We got a lot of things wrong. Um, and the key, I think, is, 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 is as you sort of work through that is really to just have that, that client mindset of, of, you know, what are we trying to do here? And for us, you know, we're sort of guided, Michael, by this principle of building the ultimate client experience. We feel like if we can get that right um, for our advisors, our partner firms, that they're going to be happier and they're going to grow faster. And those are the sort of two things that we do that. But, you know, I think one of the hardest things of being an entrepreneur is you get so passionate around, um, you know, a process or a procedure or a project that you're working on, and then it doesn't work, right? It's a real dud. And, you know, having the ability to objectively or having the team like I do to step back and say, you know what, it's not working, we need to pivot. 
um, I think is one of the hardest things that many entrepreneurs have to do in order to be able to really grow and, 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 and see that you have to, you have to sort of fall in love with the outcome, not fall in love with, Hey, this was my decision or this was my plan. And so for sanctuary, you know, I look at it, I'm incredibly proud of it and I'm incredibly proud of my teammates, but you know, it doesn't look anything like the plan that we started with. It's sort of molded and evolved based on the feedback, feedback of our clients and our partners, to where we are today, but it's been a crazy journey of a lot of ups and downs, not just what you see, uh, the outcome. So I, I really want to talk more about like that whole juxtaposition. It, it doesn't look anything like we thought it would be when we, when we started. Uh, so I want to get back to that in a moment, but, but first just help us understand what it is as it exists today. You know, I, I know you guys have gotten a, a good amount of industry press about you know building an advisor platform and and the 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 teams that have joined the firm, but I, I suspect a lot of people may have heard the name but not really know the details of the business. So, just help us understand Sanctuary as a business. Like, what is the actual platform? What do you do? Yeah, so so we are a firm of uh, about eighty partner firms in twenty nine states throughout the United States that serve the high net worth market. We sort of specialize in that two to twenty um, high net worth space that uh, our partner firms, you know, serve their client. And what Sanctuary is is the platform that they plug into to be part of that provides sort of the front, back, and middle office. But I think more importantly, it provides the community. Right? It was our belief that. Where advisors are really good, Michael, is, is, is really spending time with their clients. And if we could build a platform that could allow them to plug into all the best of class, open architecture capabilities um, to really serve their clients and grow their practice, that we could be a good partner. And, and I think that that has been, you know, sort of the secret sauce of Sanctuary is bringing together all these like-minded individuals and truly building a network, a culture of people that like and trust and care about each other that really want to help each other grow and share best practices. I spent 25 years in the wirehouse um, environment. And in that environment, it was interesting. You, you'd have a, a meeting and, and because, you know, maybe you and the person in the office next to you were pursuing the same prospective client, nobody really shared ideas. Well, at Sanctuary, you know, we're spread out over, you know, 80 teams over 29 states. And so the real culture is helping each other and sharing best practitioners around digital marketing or around, you know, how you're positioning alternative investments or whatever it may be. That's really what Sanctuary is about. It's about the culture and community, um, you know, with a very high standard and a barrier of entry of who we let into the family, um, because I think it really matters. And I think what's got a lot of businesses that haven't succeeded is they didn't have that discipline um, and they sort of just let anybody in. So we're really picky. You know, you've got to be fee based. You've got to lead with financial planning. You've got to be somebody that we we like and trust and want to want to be a partner for us. And I think that that high standard has really allowed the community to thrive. So, out of curiosity, just when you when you talk about community and the community supports and shares, just how does that actually literally work? Like, just because you're yeah. not all in one local office, like people aren't walking down the hall. I mean, is it, are you a, a big forum, like message forums system? Do you have some kind of way you bring people together virtually with open coffee yeah. chats? Like how, how does, how does community actually show up in practice? Like what, what does it mean for an advisor who to be part of and involved in the, the sanctuary community? 
So I, I think it's like the old uh, the, the old answer in, of the question I didn't know in my high school algebra test D all of the above um, <laughs> right because everybody's different um, but 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 what I think is important is is that um, you know we've built um, and you know we talked about growing pains earlier and this has probably been one of our biggest growing pains we we built a workstation that could really be um, you know, the, the host of, of all things going on within sanctuary. Right. And so that, that we call Haven and and Haven, um, you know, really connects a lot of people. It connects a lot of training. It connects a lot of best practice, but we sort of, um, at the time I remember doing it, Michael, it was funny. We launched sanctuary in 2018 and, um, not too long after that, you know, COVID hit in a really big way. And, um, at the time I'm like, Oh my gosh, could I have had any worse timing? And I sort of, uh, woed myself a little bit. And in many ways, I think one of the reasons Sanctuary has been so successful is we did build it during COVID because, um, you know, we did everything digitally and we did everything via Zoom and we did everything via video. And now video training and video um, is such a big part that it sort of connects everybody. And then, you know, with our architecture and, and, our, and our sort of relationships, you know, we bring people together for national meetings and regional meetings and um, say, hey, I saw you on a video. Can you tell me a little bit more about your business development process? And they build these friendships and these business relationships that are really deep. And um, I think that's what makes it work. So you've got to have the infrastructure to bring it together so they can be exposed to each other and the best practices and what's happening. But it's the personal relationships and the ability to share and the willingness to share, um, you know, sort, sort of um, thought leadership groups. Um, it really makes a difference. And so a lot of what we do at Sanctuary is peer-to-peer um, and our partners love it. So, I'm still trying to understand just how do the how do the peer pairings happen? Like how are they how are they finding yeah. each other or getting connected? Well, I'll give you an example. And there's lots of different ways that it happens. But one of the things we did in 2022 is we had a lot of advisors, probably about 20, that were very interested in sub acquisitions, um, right? Doing M and A within their practices, and so we brought them into a study group, and I facilitated it. Uh, along with our, our, our head of growth, uh, we facilitated that, but we brought in a lot of external resources. We brought in a lot of um, speakers and we sort of trained our partner firms on all things M&A. And um, many of our advisors come from a warehouse. So they'd never had the ability to do that or they'd been in a small RIA that wanted to plug into our platform. And so they were very curious about it. But we brought that group together. And in the first couple of meetings, everybody was learning. But every time we would have dinners and and by the end, you know, um, we're doing a lot of deals. We're sharing best practices. But more importantly, like that group of 20, 25 advisors that we brought together, they're, they're the best of friends. They're calling each other. They're talking yep. about prospective deals. They're talking about different things. And so if you put people together who are good people, who are really growth minded, um, they will connect and they will take it far greater than you could have ever, you know, you ever, ever could have taken it. I feel like like our job at a place like Sanctuary is to, to A, have high standards and bring the right people in. But beats to be the symphony orchestra conductor, right? Is to bring people that are world class together, and then in many ways get them out, get out of the way and let them connect and do their thing. But when you put them all together, it's pretty magical music. So you've talked quite a bit about uh, like par- partner firms. So what exactly is a partner firm? Like, what does it mean to be a partner firm? Yeah, so 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 those are businesses, right? So so we've got approximately eighty businesses that partner with Sanctuary. Some of those we have a stake in. Some of those we don't have a stake in. Um, but those are the businesses we serve. We view them as our clients. Um, you know, they use the platform. They use our our solutions. Um, you know, they sit on our ADV. Um, and, and all those things are, 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 are really 
a, a long way of just saying there are clients, there are customers. And so we call it partnered independence because we own a stake in a fair amount of those. Um, and we think that really makes sense because it aligns our interests, right? We're, just, we're not out there trying to just uh, upcharge them or, or, you know, make money off of them. We truly own part of that practice. And so we are partners and that's worked really, really well for us. Um, probably will never be 100% of what we do. But when we talk about our partners, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the 80 businesses. Some of those businesses are teams of, you know, five or 10 people. And some of those businesses are one advisor and his, his or her assistant. Um, so, but, but those are the 80 practices that we serve today. So I think you said they, they do sit on your ADV. So structurally, like, you are one, I guess, like master corporate RIA, and they become IARs under your corporate RIA, or are they? Yeah, that's right. They, they, own they, they, firms. They, they own their own firms. So to be really clear about that, they own their own firms, right? So they own the LLC, um, and but there are IARs that sit on our um, that sit on our ADB, and so uh, we're a large corporate RIA. Uh, that gives us a lot of scale. It gives us a lot of pricing, and and we pass that along through our partners so that they're more profitable. Um, but but as it relates to the business, they each own that themselves. Now we may own a, a small stake of fifteen or twenty or thirty percent of those practices, um, but that's how we're set up. Wait, I just I'm sorry, I'm intrigued on this just to nerd out for a moment on the like literal it. corporate structures. So so you're your own entity. They own their own LLC that's separate from you. But they're also still IARs on your corporate RIA. So just yep. how does that work with the separate entities? Like is technically their like their LLC as an entity is an IAR on your corporate RIA or the the people are an IAR on your corporate the people RIA? People are the IAR, are. but then the compensation flows through to that entity that they've set up, an LLC usually. Um, so the LLC is where the, the compensation and the expense lies, but the individual IARs um, sit on our ADV. Interesting. Okay, and and then where do advise like where do advisory agreements and contracts with clients? Those are all at the sanctuary level. Um, you know, we've got uh, a series of of, of 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 agreements and contracts. Now um, that can differentiate a little bit. Um, so so anything that's the regulatory perspective, um, you know, like an investment advisory agreement per se, that's going to go through sanctuary. But because they own their own LLCs. You know, um, you know the hiring of the people. Um, you know, some some of the uh, some you know the, the cleaning service. Those kind of things run through their LLC. So it's a it's a pretty interesting combination that we've built. Um, yeah. But when you think about it from the regulatory perspective, all of that is going to be at the sanctuary level because we are the RAA and it's our ADV that that all sits on. Interesting, but I guess functionally, like the the regulatory end and the registrations flow through sanctuary, and I guess you've got the the compliance obligation that goes along with yes, the sanctuary 100%. level. And that's like, a big deal, right? I mean, many of our firms are coming from a wirehouse. They don't want to own all that compliance. They don't know how to own that compliance. And so we do that for them. We take care of that. They don't have to deal with a regulatory audit. They're not dealing with, you know, I mean, the, the, the audits they're dealing with are going to be our internal audits when our, our compliance team shows up to, to go through that. So um, for a lot of advisors, they really prefer, um, you know, us handling all of that on their behalf. But then when it comes down to, quote unquote, the advisor's business and literally their P&L, in essence, you're, you're not paying them salaries as IAR employees of the sanctuary RIA. You're paying the compensation to their LLC. And then 1099 it, income. Yeah. 1099 income to their income. LLC. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, and, then, and then they've got their own expenses at their level. And then I'm going to presume some kind of platform fee that you got it 
yeah, then either right. their LLC pays to Sanctuary or that you subtract before you you make. The yeah, and we do all their reporting. Oh. We do all of their billing. You know, we help them with all their digital marketing. You know, we do all the document storage and retention. You know, it's our mantra and our belief that if we can get that advisor to spend time on his or her client and and and, and his or her prospects. Um, that, that that's going to be best for them. And so we try to build everything out. We do give them a ton of autonomy. You know, one of the things that, that, that maybe we're different than a lot of people um, is we don't try to control the investment experience or we don't try to control the client experience. Now, you know, obviously we have got an investment committee and we've got investment agreements and we go through approvals and all that's incredibly important. But, but we believe that the, 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 the really the financial plan should govern the relationship. And that's a very intimate relationship between an advisor and his or her client. And so, um, you know, we really give them a lot of autonomy to operate as they best see fit as it relates to, 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 to that. Now, obviously, like anything you would imagine, you know, we've got, we've got pretty broad constraints uh, regulatory that they've got to sit between, but with our partner firms, that's never an issue. So we give them flexibility in how they want to bill. We give them flexibility in how they want to invest. Um, so it looks and feels like an independent practice, but they're not having to do all the things that sort of bog down many practices day to day. They can sort of outsource that to sanctuary uh, and yet participate in this, this, this really, um, I don't know what I would call it, a community of growth. It's probably the best term I would say. So what what led you to this LLC <laughs> structure? Because I I haven't done any like an unofficial you know industry survey on this, but I'm I'm fairly certain just for for most advisor platforms that roll up to a corporate RIA, just advisors are paid you know d- direct as individuals off the corporate RIA, not with this LLC structure, kind of this LLC layer to it. So what what was the what was the purpose or the genesis of the the LLC layer and structure? Yeah, so w- when I left Merrill Lynch after a 25-year really great career, you know, I had a non-compete, non-solicit for, um, you know, 12 months. And so I did this world tour and I went out and I looked at a lot of different models, um, all the platforms that were there, some of the aggregators, some of the consolidators. And I felt like that there was an opportunity to, um, you know, build, there was a hole, to be honest. And, you know, at that time, you know, if somebody wanted to go independent, they would write a consulting check and then they would, they would, they would, um, you know, pay a consultant to, 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 to take them independent. And, and then, you know, they would, they would be locked into a four or five year contract with that firm. And I, it just didn't seem very advisor centric. Um, and so, um, when I looked at that, I just thought that there was an opportunity to build something that could, um, allow the advisor to scratch their entrepreneurial itch and to, to deliver an, an, an independent um, ex- client experience, but yet not have to do it all themselves. So we, we say it's like about being independent, but not alone. And so as we looked at that, we, we engaged a lot of really good law firms and really good accounting firms. And we said, okay, you know, wh- wh- what might be the most tax efficient way to do this? And what might be um, a way that obviously we do it within the regular regulatory confines, but, but, but we deliver um, you know, we deliver autonomy to our advisors because to me, that's what many that were sitting in a wirehouse were really looking for was they were looking for the ability to have autonomy and not not sort of be bound by this lowest common denominator of a compliance platform. And so that's what we did. And, and the structure we came up with was this concept of, you know, really, they wanted to be 1099. They wanted to be business owners. Um, they just didn't want to have to build the platform to run the business because, as you and I know, and many others know, 
that's really hard and takes a really long time. And so instead of building it all themselves, they just plugged into us, but they wanted many of the benefits of owning their own business and of having some of the tax efficiencies and so forth. And so that's what we created. Interesting. Interesting. And so from the platform end then, like how do the economics work in in practice? Obviously, you've still got expenses to manage yourself. I mean, I'm envisioning there's basically sort of two layers of P&Ls now. There's like the sanctuary layer for what, what, what you do and what you earn uh, uh, before dollars flow down to the advisors. And then each advisor partner firm has their own P&L expenses, that they're managing yeah. through, through the LLC. Uh, but, you know, there's typically like there, there's one check the client pays, right, that <laughs> goes up fees out of the account to 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 get allocated out. So how does this work from a fee splitting, revenue splitting, like platform? Yeah. Platform, so you know, so how do you carve this up? And who gets one of the it? things that we were um, religious about was we wanted to keep it simple and it had to be transparent. You know, one of the things that I realized when I was on my my uh, kind of knowledge journey going out and meeting was like, there was a lot of, um, you know, sort of these markups and these tech charge markups and, and you know, I'm going to get um, Orion for this, but I'm going to mark it up. And so we made the decision to keep it really simple and be really transparent. We charge a... Um, we charge a fee to be on our platform. That's a percentage of revenue, and it goes down as the team gets bigger, and that's what they pay us. Um, and so, and then we go out and we negotiate and and source um, their technology stack, and we give them choice, um, you know, around different uh, different different platforms that they want. But they're paying us a simple uh, fee, which is a part of their revenue. We do all the billing, um, and so we withhold our fee and then send them uh, send them the rest. It's very transparent billing. But there's not a bunch of markups or markdowns or markarounds. It's just this is what you pay sanctuary. And and can you give us a sense, at least the neighborhood of like what what is this percentage allocation? Yeah, you know, it really depends on the size of the team, right? But 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 it can be as low as maybe um, you know ten percent, and and as high as you know maybe twenty percent. But it's somewhere within that, depending on okay. what the team needs and and how big they are and how much revenue they are and some of the services that they're providing? And then do we own a part of them or not own a part of them? So it's not as easy just to say a specific number, but, but I think somewhere in that 10 to 20 range is pretty fair of where, where honestly, almost everybody ends up um, in, in this platform space. They just do it differently. Some say, hey, you're only going to pay a seven. But then when you look at all the charge ups, you're really paying 14 or 15. And so yeah. we didn't want to do that. We just wanted to be like, like, look, this is our fee and how we're going to do it. Um, and, and, you know, everybody knows that when they come in and you know, we make an agreement with them that that, that that's not going to change. This is the fee that we're going to charge you as long as you're part of Sanctuary. And um, there, there it is. Yeah, I know the um, the old like informal rule of thumb I, always, I had always heard for years and years in the independent broker dealer world was was eight plus eight. Uh, yeah. You know, that that IBDs at the end of the day end up making something in the neighborhood of about 16% of revenue from their advisors you usually much more indirect so you know eight eight of it comes off the grid right you know the proverbial 90 something percent uh yeah 92 percent payout and the other eight is tech markups platform fees ticket charge markups um you know uh wrapper fees to use certain uh investment account offerings right right? all all the other things that layer in and we kind of play the game of well, I'm going to do a little bit less of this because they charge me a lot for that, but I got I got to give them their their pound of flesh on this because I do use that. And like you mix it all together, and some people will be a little higher or lower, but that's right. Still, still comes into similar neighborhood, and then bigger firms get break points, and you 
you fluctuate right in that 10 to 20% range. Like yeah, that, you nailed it. Yes. That, well that said, is amazing how consistent these really come out to be at the end. And, you know, and, and so many times, like, like somebody will say to us, hey, you know, sanctuary is more expensive or whatever. And, and we'll say, okay, let's do the analysis and we'll break it down. And it ends up in the same thing, you know? So, so I feel like at the end of the day, you know, what you just said is, is, is been right for a long time and continues to be right. And, you know, the bigger you are, the faster growing you are, then, then, then maybe you can get a, you know, a little bit better outside of that economics, but it's going to be somewhere in that ballpark range, no matter what you do, if you participate in the platform. And then is there some kind of minimum of a minimum platform fee or just like a minimum AUM base that you need to yeah, have? You know, for us, we, we, our market is we serve, um, we serve um, advisors and advisor teams that do about a million dollars in revenue and beyond. That, that's kind of our sweet spot. We, um, you know, we're, we're building a boutique firm and a boutique culture. We don't want to be another wirehouse. So, you know, we, we sort of are, are, are really thoughtful on, on who fits in our space and, and how big we want to be in the future. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're very thoughtful around that. And we feel like that, you know, we, we serve that, that's sort of a million dollar revenue team to about a $15 million revenue team. And, and then on, on average, they, they, they serve clients that, that for the most part, I mean, obviously we've got some really big ones, but sort of that two to 20 space, that's who we serve and, and the clients they serve. And, and so everything we build is built around that experience and that, that those, you know, that client profile. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, sort of lessons learned is like, one of the things that I don't think I had enough respect for or, or really knowledge of in the beginning is like, you have to build your firm based on your client profile. Um, and if you yeah. do that, you'll have a lot more expense. But, but when you start building things just because they sound cool or you heard about them, but they don't really fit your client profile, boy, do you take some wasted steps. And, and, and goodness knows that, that, that I've done that a few times. Yeah, that whole phenomenon of like, oh, this, this sounds neat. I think it would be cool. We could offer it. A few people would use it. It's like, well, yeah, but if a few people use it, like you need a whole staff team and an infrastructure yes. and then a manager to oversee them for this project or offering that only a few few people actually use. And then and then you got a, another team with a couple of people and a manager to do this one because someone's got to be accountable and responsible for it. And and if you're if you're trying to scale a larger organization and and a and a platform like those those additional teams and the management overhead and the organizational complexity can take a toll really quickly when just your your org chart suddenly starts get starts to get really big and there's a lot of managers managing things that don't actually really generate a lot of revenue. You nailed it. And that that's probably been the toughest lesson learned for me as a CEO and the founder of the firm and, and is like, you know, is it scalable, right? I mean, I think in the beginning, we all make decisions as, you know, advisors and as, as firm owners, you know, hey, you know, let, let, let's, let's, let's do this deal, let's grow, right? And then you, you start to to string enough deals together and you're like, you know, you realize you're just building yourself a ceiling um, because, you know, if everything's an exception, then, you know, you're in trouble. And so right. you've really got to think about how can I build a scalable practice? How can I build a scalable company? And it's like the best way to do that, in my opinion, and, and sort of I have some scars to, to, to show for this is like to really understand who your client is and listen to, for our case, listen to our advisors who tell us, hey, you know, this is what I need. This is what I need to serve my client because then you don't have to convince them to use what you've built, right? You've built what they told you they need. Um, and so I think that's something that uh, we've gotten a lot better at over the last uh, four or five years. Um, and, and certainly would, would just say to anybody that's listening today, you know, to, 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 to really key in on that client profile because it, it really does make you more efficient and accelerate your growth. So, now help us understand just what what sanctuary does at at the end of the day. Like what do I 
from the advisor's end, like, Jim, what do I get for my 10 yeah. per percent yeah. that, I'm, that I'm paying you guys? Like, what is that so one thing that I cover that was, I was going to otherwise have to eat off my P&L anyways as an independent advisor? Right. We feel like we do a lot and we feel like candidly, we've now got our, our pricing and our scale down to the fact that, you know, it's just as profitable to be um, on our ADV as a, as a partner on the platform of Sanctuary. It is to own your own ADV. And so, um, and, you know, we've used our 25 billion in scale to push down pricing, right? With, with um, you know, Orion as an example, the per account pricing, um, you know, the, the, the CRM, um, you know, since all those things, you know, we, we build it. And I think one of the things that people don't really respect unless they've gone through the wars is how hard it is to, 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 to not make the decision on what technology to use, but how to connect all that technology. And so I think one of the biggest things we do is we provide a connected ecosystem um, of all the data flow, right? So, you know, if you want data about your practice, you want data for your client data, you know, we, we've got a data lake that, that provides that. And so when an advisor comes to Sanctuary, they, they, they get they get this this um, this suite that's already built that they can they can plug into um, that allows them to to run their business. I think really intelligently. And on top of that, they get a platform of growth, right? And so, like one of the things that I believe passionately in, and I'm really focused on right now, is you know how do we market ourselves digitally? Uh, for many advisors, they weren't very good at it, and for a lot of advisors, they couldn't do it. And so, one of the things that Sanctuary's done is. They've really focused on, you know, how do we allow you to show up on video and how can you capture your unfair share of this 84, you know, trillion dollars that's going to transition from one generation to the next? Because we all know that that next generation consumes very differently than, you know, the silent generation did and the baby boomers. And so, you know, those are the things that you can plug into at Sanctuary that it's not just a platform. And like one of the decisions we made in, in, um, 2021, which I think has paid off huge dividends, you know, we were really frustrated um, in the TAMP space. And so we went out and, um, you know, we, we now have our own TAMP um, that, that's powered by Pershing X, but, but it's our TAMP and we control what sits on it. We control the pricing on it. And that's allowed us to throw a lot of economics back to our advisors and add to their profitability because we're not paying, you know, what a lot of people pay. And so, you know, it, it's this holistic thought of we get up every day and we think about, okay, if we were, if we were our advisor, um, what would be important to them? And I think it's the ability to have holistic data to run your practice that's all connected and plugged together and plumbed um, appropriately. But yet you also want to know that, that you know, the, the, um, the compliance is going to be there. And, and then on top of that, the icing on the cake is this, this, growth, this growth concept. And, you know, we measure that really, really fanatical. Um, you know, our partner firms last year organically grew in a pretty tough market environment at about 9% compare that to the 2% that, um, that the average firm grows at in our space. Um, and, and that's a real win. And so, um, you know, it's that growth content with sort of that, that holistic platform together that I think is the secret sauce of what Sanctuary is and why so many people are attracted to it. So help me understand a little bit more what, just what you're doing with data and unifying data. Cause I, you know, Almost yeah, all of us in the independent space complain about we've we've got all this tech and like each one's pretty good and quote unquote best in class in their in their class with their own data <laughs> that's not yeah. not fully kind of integrated but not not really fully integrated to everything else that we're also <laughs> using at the same time. Yeah. So uh so help us understand more what you've built in this space. Well, you know, um 
I don't know that we built anything other than a data warehouse, right? And so if you really think about it, you know, and I, gosh, knows, man, I, I, I did not know this when I launched this business, um, you know, like data comes in all kinds of forms and shapes and you have to clean it up um, so that it can work together and, and, and can be, um, you know, can, can, can be productive. And so, you know, for us, we're a multi-custodial firm. Um, you know, we, we, we had all this data coming from all these places and, um, you know, the data was great, but when you tried to mash it all together, you know, there were, there were all these errors and all these exceptions. And, and so, you know, we, we hired a, a wonderful COO from, from, you know, who worked at United Capital for a long time and then Goldman Sachs. And she's come on and really helped us like take a step backwards and say, yeah, it has to not only be best of class, but it has to be compatible with the rest of part of our tech stack so that it can go into a data warehouse in our, in our particular situation and then come out via a portal for our clients and for our advisors and that the data is right. It's easy to use. Um, it's, it, you know, you, you can query it, you, you can search it. Um, and, and it's like, it, it sounds easy, but it's not, it's not easy at all. And, you know, we spent a lot of time and money building it, but, but, but now when you look at our desktop, you know, we, we use business tech, business intelligence uh, software that sort of takes all that data called Domo and, and really brings it out of our data warehouse onto our desktop. So it's easy for advisors to use. And I think that consumability of that data is really hard to find. And it's one of the frustrations. We have a lot of firms today, Michael, that are coming to us and say, look, I'm independent. Um, I love being independent, but, but, you know, stuff like data and, and compliance is, is really taking so much more of our time. I don't have as much time to spend with my clients. Can we join your platform? And then they come onto our platform and they see how easy it is to consume that data. And I think it's a, it just makes their, their client experience better and makes their practice better. Interesting. And, and so, I mean, just, do you have like an internal technology team? Like, is there a, yeah, a, yeah. A we call technology platform, officer yeah. and some other folks that have to figure out how to manage yeah. a data warehouse and integrate it to platforms like Domo? Just, I don't, yeah. I don't usually think of that as classic advisory firm core competency that that's a, you, that's you a know, new space. Well, I, I think for us, you know, one of the reasons that we build it that way is because so many of our advisors were coming from a warehouse and that's just what they were used to. Right. And so right. for us to be able to recruit them and for, for us to be able to make them have a great experience, they couldn't go backwards. And so the ability to have their their data and the ability to do that, um, you know, really made it an easier transition from a warehouse into the independent space because we tried to give them the freedom and flexibility of independence um, and the autonomy of independence but yet not make it so they had to build it all themselves, right? And make it so that we had, I mean, you know, the, the whole concept of, of having a, a workstation per se, um, when, I, when I went on my journey, you know, four and a half years ago to sort of think about building this thing was really foreign. But, you know, so many independent practices that have joined Sanctuary are like, oh my God, we love this. This is exactly what we were looking for. It just makes our life easier. So we believe that making that investment and building out what we call our platform team um, is really differentiated. And, you know, we don't bring a new vendor onto our platform unless it goes through that group, unless they look at it and say, yeah, this is compatible. The API is there um, because it's just going to be a bad experience for our partner firms. And, um, you know, the, the better we've gotten at that, um, the better our happiness and, and, you know, our surveying work that we do with our partner firms has got. So we think making life as easy as you can uh, as it relates to data and practice management is really important. So 
So this isn't, I just want to make sure I understand. So th- this isn't necessarily about like integrations per se as though like, you know, we're going to make um, Redtail talk a little bit better to Orion to talk a little bit better to eMoney. This is, this is more on the business reporting, business intelligence side, like just being able to see and understand here's what's going on in your practice. Here's how it's situated. I think it's, I think it's all those things. I think it is about making sure those things talk and not adding new new vendors that that don't integrate well you know our crm's wealthbox and wealthbox works really well with orion um you know we've made sure that it works really well with our tamp we've made sure that it works really well with the custodians um and and sort of like i think one of the lessons learned in the early years at sanctuary was like instead of taking on 50 projects let's take on five and do them really well and make sure everything's connected and once it's connected then we'll add a sixth then we'll add a seventh and sort of build out from the center instead of trying to do 50 things at once but one of the things that that you know I think you, you had to you need is you need data to benchmark your practice to understand what's working and not working and how you're growing and you know what what maybe clients you know we start to get into the AI concept you know what w- what things out there could we look at from our data that tells us that clients are raving fans and and we should ask them for a referral and what parts of our data might they say they're not very happy and there's a risk they're going to leave right it's all of that trying to build into our platform but then delivering it to our partner firms so they can consume it as they see fit we're probably in the fifth inning of a nine inning game. So I don't want to act like we've figured it all out or we've got there, but what we've built so far has been very well consumed by our partners and very much appreciated. So, so I hear kind of technology and your unique version of it, because even if you've got some technology tools out there that other folks can get to right, wealth box and Orion and such, you know, you, you get a better deal on it for, you know, size and, and, and collective buying power. And then you've built this layer of integration, a data warehouse, business intelligence that overlays it to make the tech work better. So I I, I get like the tech end. Obviously, you're covering compliance because you have to right. in the structure, but it's welcome because not very many people really want to do their own compliance. Uh, so is is that the is that the core of what's there in the offering? Are there other layers or service capabilities that tie into yeah. There, there, there are. So, you know, we've got a practice management group um, that that we have um, that, that's really strong and we've got a training group. Um, and they're really, like I said before, the symphony orchestra constructors that a lot of our training and a lot of our work is peer to peer of just really bringing best practicing advisors together because that's what we feel that they want. But we really think about us, um, you know, you know, I, I feel like at the end of the day, what are what we feel our advisors want is they want the ability to make the choice but they want to have the breadth and depth of a platform behind them to help them do it in a more efficient way. And so a great example of that's performance reporting, right? You know, we've got a team that sits in Austin, Texas that, you know, really goes through and looks at the investments that are brought to them. They'll do that due diligence and they'll, they'll, they'll go back to the advisor and say, yes, this makes sense uh, or doesn't make sense. Um, they do a, a ton of due diligence on all of our funds and, you know, but a lot of that is customized, right? We, we, we have a, a partner firm that comes in and says, hey, I've got this. Can you look at that? And so I think having that breadth and depth, um, that, that's just part of your team that you can use at any time um, as it relates to investment management specialties, as it relates to financial planning. That's really what we've built. We also have a family office for the ultra high net worth part of our business that people can run into because what we noticed was, 
you know, that, that, that they had a great book of business and they had um, a bunch of $10 million clients, but maybe they had one family that was a hundred million. And so we wanted to build out these core services that that family could still be served through that partner firm, but that partner firm could plug into a group of specialists that that's all they do. And so, you know, all those things, all those satellite businesses, uh, we've got a group that, it, that, that supports insurance for uh, any insurance work, uh, estate planning insurance work that our teams want to do. We've got, um, you know, a whole series of sort of these specialty practices, the same thing around retirement planning that advisor says, look, it's not part of my core competency, um, but it's a growth opportunity. How can I partner to, to take advantage of this opportunity within Sanctuary's resources and network? And so, you know, the core is our advisor, but we've built this entire holistic platform of satellites around them that they can reach into um, to, you know, to help them grow or to partner with them. And, and, and all of those services, I think, lead to that organic growth rate that we were talking about before. So where does then the this layer come in that you said for a, a non-trivial number of your firms, Sanctuary actually owns a stake in them, may, may own, I think you said 15 to 30% of the business. So where, where does like buying an ownership come in relative to sort of this baseline of you're independent or you wanted to go independent and become independent and you know you've got your LLC and, yeah. and you're controlling your revenue and your P&L and and you're just paying us this 10 to 20% to cover the overhead you're going to have to cover anyways but we'll do it better and more efficiently for you like I get that whole independence framework but like where does the ownership stakes or the transactions come in like who's Who's yeah, who's no. selling and why are they selling in the midst of doing this independence transition? It's it's a great question, and, and this part of the conversation will be fun, Michael. So, you know, you talk about unintended parts of a business plan, right? You know, I, I think this was an unintended part of the business plan, but it's probably one of our fastest growing plans. And so, um, you know, what happened is we raised capital. Um, you know, some people begin to question, you know, hey, you know, these people are on your platform, but but they could leave, they could do whatever, and and. You know, you can say to somebody as much as you want that, um, well, they're not going to leave. They love us. Right. But 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 they're still going to they're still going to give you a discount on your valuation if that's the case. And so, um, you know, we, we began to have some conversations with our partner firms and said, hey, listen, um, you know, if you're ever interested in taking some chips off the table, let us know. And, and we would love to we're not interested in having a control stake at this point, but but we'd love to take a minority stake. And. We had great demand from that. And, and, and a lot of our partner firms said to us um, really a couple things. Number one was, hey, um, we do want to take some chips off the table. We don't want to sell the whole thing, but we want to take some chips off the table. Um, and sometimes that was to facilitate, you know, an internal transition plan. There were lots of reasons, but, but they were interested in that. And an awful lot of our partner firms said, hey, look, we'd like to do an equity stop. And we see what's happening with Sanctuary. You guys are growing. We think you're going to be... You know, so let's do an equity swap. So we did a fair amount of equity swaps. But what the third reason was, and this is probably the most exciting to me, was, um, you know, we saw an opportunity to do sub acquisitions alongside our partner firms. Right. And so, you know, and it just made all the sense in the world to me that, you know, we've got these partner firms that are in 29 states. Um, they've got great relationships. They understand in their local markets better than anyone else. And if they bring us a deal, um, an M&A deal that, that we might want to take a, a stake in, why wouldn't we do that together? Why wouldn't we do a co-investment? And so um, when we do a co-investment with our partner firms, which we've done five or six, and it's probably one of the faster growing parts of our business today, um, we'll take a stake first in that partner firm that we're going to do the deal with. And then together, we'll go take a stake in the firm that we're going to want to buy. And what that's really allowed us to do, Michael, is 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 
develop a sales force of, of, of that, that we couldn't have done otherwise, right? Because now we've got people in these 29 states and these markets that know and, and trust these advisors that we're thinking about buying. They know if they're going to fit in the sanctuary culture. They know if they're good people. They know if they have a good book of business. They, they know, you know, if they're compliant. Um, and so when these partner firms make these introductions and, you know, I get on a plane or my, my partners get on a plane and we, we go meet them that, um, you know, the deal's I don't say it's already done, but but most of the deal's done. We just have to figure out economics that work for everybody because they've known and trusted each other and liked each other for years. And so a lot of our plan going forward is really to use our institutional capital and use our expertise around thing, you know, all things investment banking um, that we've built within our company and go out into the marketplace and uh, break people away from the wirehouses. We'll never stop doing that because it's a really good business for us. But then with those people that we've brought away, do sub acquisitions. And when we do those sub acquisitions, that's when we truly become a partner because we're both invested in these businesses that we're buying. And so I guess from the pure sort of investor economics and enterprise dynamics for Sanctuary itself, like it's one thing to say they're partner firms and they love us and and they're going to stick with us for a long time. And over time, you get to build your retention track record to, to prove that out to your investors. But it's a whole other level when you can just go and say like, no, no, like we're literally partners in their firm. Like we, yeah. we, <laughs> we, we own, we own, we own thirty percent of the firm, and and so not that that's even necessarily about handcuffing them, but just obviously no, they, they have no. a different level of buy into sanctuary if they're literally willing to let you buy. And, and look, in every one so of our deals, firm. <laughs> yeah, and in every one of our deals, we we don't take control. I mean, we 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 have some protections in there to protect our investment, and 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 we have an agreement if if if, if they want. To sell that, you know, um, if they want to sell our stake, that 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 they can do that, right? Um, and those terms are in there. And so um, it's been fantastic. It's been in the last twelve months that we've really gotten onto this, and um, it's a huge part of our growth going forward. And the same time, we're growing faster. Our valuation's gone higher. So from a corporate perspective, I think it's been a huge win-win. And then where does where does the cash come from? Like, how are you? financing this for all these, all these. Yeah. Deals. So in, in July of last year, so, so funny, kind of funny story that, that many entrepreneurs will appreciate. I remember going to my wife, um, the love of my life and, and saying, you know, sweetie, um, I'm not going to go to work at Morgan Stanley, even though I've got this wonderful opportunity. This is when I left Merrill Lynch. Um, we're going to launch our own firm and take on all this debt, but I promise you it's going to work out right. Uh, many entrepreneurs have had to go through that conversation and that, 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 that conversation. And so for the first couple of years, myself and, um, a, a firm called the Cook Financial Group here in Indianapolis. Um, we launched this together and we started the journey uh, together. They were leaving Wells Fargo. Um, I was leaving Merrill Lynch. And so we started to build this together and they were the founding you know, partner firm. And, and candidly, for the first two years, um, you know, we, we, we cash rolled a lot of it ourselves and we had a bank loan. And then um, we've raised a couple rounds of institutional capital after that. The most recent one uh, was in July of this year, which raised $175 million in convertible debt. Um, that, uh, you know, can convert into equity. Um, and, and so that institutional capital. And the reason we did that, Michael, and it was a real, um, man, it was a real soul searcher for me because it was the first time that we'd uh, used private, private equity or private debt money. Um, but the reality was, you know, I'm kind of a farm kid from Indiana, right? So $175 million seems like a lot of money. But when you really get into RAA, M&A, um, it's not as much as you'd think. And so, you know, for us, we needed a partner that we knew 
if this was successful, which it's been, we could keep growing with and we could keep doing more deals with. Um, and so, you know, what I find today is it's really hard to be competitive at the M&A table in the REA space if you don't have institutional capital behind you. And so um, we made that move this year. It was a it was a pretty Herculean mental leap for us, um, but it's worked out well. And I, and I think we're headed in a really good direction. It's interesting when you think about the the math to it of just RIA M&A dynamics, right? If, if um, you know, if you want to peg mid-sized firms that called something in the neighborhood of two to two and a half times revenue as a, a rule of thumb valuation, like 175 million in, in cash buys you maybe something in the neighborhood of $70 million of revenue, which at a 1% yep. fee is about $7 billion of, of AUM. And like, it's not a small number. It's nothing to shake a stick at, but you know, you're you're already, I think you said a twenty five billion dollar firm. Yeah. So it's a little depressed. Right. Like, hey, we raised one hundred and seventy five million dollars worth of capital, and it could almost grow us thirty percent if we deployed all of it immediately. One hundred percent, and that's why we've really gone the minority stake. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We just spread our capital out more. You know, we can also you know serve them via the platform, and and you know I, I, that math was eye opening to me. I did the exact same math you did, and and. You know, and I think it's why you're going to see, in my opinion, um, and I know David DeVoe and others far smarter than me have said this, you're going to start to see a consolidation of the consolidators, right? And, and, I, and I think if, if the public markets, um, you know, normalize a little bit and, and, and there's not such a huge uh, difference between valuations in the private and public markets, I think you're going to see more companies um, enter the public markets in these large RAA firms because their access to capital to continue to do the deals is much more advantageous as a public company than it is to just keep financing, you know, via private equity. Um, and so it'll be interesting to watch that, but, but you're exactly right. You know, a hundred million doesn't go as far as it used to. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Depressing to think about. It is. But, amen. But I guess, so just for advisors who, aren't as familiar in this space. I mean, I feel like for most who maybe are starting to get into mergers and acquisitions or trying it or want to explore it, they're typically having conversations with either a, a local bank or a handful of banks in our space that are financing these these things like Live Oak and Oak Street and the rest. Yeah. So like just help us understand like what is what is a convertible debt arrangement for this $175 million amount? Like, what is that as opposed to bank financing? And why did you pursue that as opposed to bank financing? Yeah, you, you, you know, we viewed this last round of, of, of capital raising probably to be our last dilutive event, right? And so, um, you know, we, 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 you know, I don't say we got this right, but, but we saw some clouds forming. And we thought, you know, kind of Warren Buffett mindset, it was it was better to have a war chest than not have a war chest, right. And so I remember at the time doing it, Michael, and, you know, our interest rate is somewhere around 8%. And at the time, people were like, Oh, my goodness. And now everybody's like, man, you have a great rate. So we, we, we that 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 did well by us. But, um, you know, for us, you know, we wanted a partner that we could do this deal with that that could, um, you know, if we if we went through the $150 million, um, there was more there. Um, and so that's what we did. And, and the reality for us was where we were in our life cycle, um, you know, thank goodness, there's going to be a plenty of EBITDA that after that debt converts, you know, we'll have no leverage on our balance sheet and we can go out and continue to grow via debt and not have more dilution. And so that was our plan. And I think, you know, what a lot of your listeners probably want to think about is, 
you know, what do I want to do? If I want to do an acquisition, um, I, I, I don't need private equity money. I, I, I can go to a bank or I can go to, you know, the, the firms you mentioned, Live Oak and others, and they're really good. And um, they can help me do that, that deal. And um, I can add a firm to my practice and I'm going to go and do great. Um, but if I want to be a serial acquirer, I probably am going to want and need more institutional capital um, to go out and, and, and be able to do that. And I think, you know, there is, um, you know, the vast majority of the deals that are getting done today are getting done by these national firms who are national acquirers. But that doesn't mean that there's still not a ton, an absolute ton of local firms that are, you know, a billion dollars, you know, that, that, that can and should be doing, you know, tuck-ins and acquisitions. Um, and they can finance that through, their local bank, or probably more importantly, through some of these niche financiers. It's just, I think if you want to be a serial acquirer, um, you need a lender that really knows the space and, and can set it up um, with a facility that you can do multiple deals and you can react pretty quickly. And that's where we were at Sanctuary. We needed that partnership to be able to do that. When I'm struck by just what you're describing in the in the context of just like managing the capital structure of the business. So if, so if I'm understanding like part of the challenge here is just even for the size that you guys are at, you can only get so much out of the gate as as one big old ginormous loan because you know, that's right. At, at the that's end of right. the day, like you know, lenders do actually care about things like what is your profits and free cash flow, yeah. what is your ability to service this uh, uh, to, to service this debt. And of course, if you're in fast growth mode, the reality is you may not have a lot of profits and earnings and free cash flow because you're investing so aggressively into the, into the and, business. And that's exactly where we were, Michael. We, we, were, we were in the fourth year of a four-year plan to build out the platform. And so we, we had you know, positive EBITDA. Um, it wasn't as much as we knew we were going to have a year later. It was a pretty quantum leap for where we would be you know, on a, on a pro forma run rate in 23. And so that's why this convertible structure made sense for us. Um, and, you know, we were really comfortable with it and I think it's going to play out really well, but I, but I don't want our listeners to like get so bought up in like, you know, all these fancy terms, because the reality is, you know, if you know a local firm in your local community and you want to do a tuck in or you want to buy them, there are so many opportunities that yep. are more simplistic that you can plug into um, to get those deals done. And I think, you know, that's a really good thing because uh, that that's an important part of the ecosystem, just like the serial acquirers are. But if you're going to be a serial acquirer, you really need a facility that's got size and sophistication because that's what you're competing with. And and facility just essentially means like I've got I've got a set of borrowing terms that are set. So I can yes. when when I need to draw more dollars to borrow, I can borrow then, but I don't have to borrow it all up front. I can borrow it as I need, but I know what my terms are going to be, so I don't have to get each loan underwritten one at a time. It, it, it I mean, basically, we should think of it as a a glorified, really, really, really big line of credit. That's exactly right. That's a hundred percent right, and you need that sophistication if you're going to play at the serial acquirer level. But then I guess the 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 asterisk that goes with it when you're trying to do this in a fast growth environment is again lenders will still only let you borrow so much based on your free cash flow or profitability right. and and whatever their debt service coverage ratios are right like how much free cash flow do you have relative to right. your yeah. debt payments so the so the the like tactical path for you was we're going to do this as convertible debt which means we we borrow the dollars but it actually converts into equity at some 
That's future, right. future valuation. And so this this is dilutive as equity to make us bigger. But once we do that, the debt converts in equity. So, you know, the quote unquote the bad news at the end of that is I, I don't own hundred percent of my firm now. I've got an, an equity right. an equity partner, but the good news is I'm a lot larger, so hopefully, whatever the percentage are, you eighty percent of the bigger theme is better than one hundred percent with one hundred seventy five million is better than one hundred percent of the thing without it. And when you get to the other end, they go from having one hundred. You go from having one hundred seventy five million dollars of debt to having a whatever percent equity partner and no debt on your balance sheet. And so now you're a much bigger business with a lot more earnings and free cash flow. So after that, you can say like, okay, now we're just going to go get. The giant old fixed loan with the best terms that we can, yeah. because now I can get a really big loan on my free cash flow because I'm a much bigger business. Uh, whereas if I have to do it more incrementally, I'm going to be so constrained on growth. Like if I keep too much of my equity, I can't get to the size to get the bigger loans. Yeah, you nailed it. That, that, like, I don't think I could have said it any better. Um, you know, the the one thing I would just add to that that's sort of been interesting, right? For the first time in, gosh, you know, what seems like forever, interest rates are rising, right? And so, luckily for us, you know, one of those big decisions we made was to fix our loan. So we have a fixed rate loan. But for those that don't, that that that's been a big wild card because some of the profitability they thought that they were going to have to be able to access their facilities um, is not there, right? Because they've got right. additional interest and they've got um, a less free cash flow. And so it's an interesting time uh, right now. And, and I think, um, you know, as rates continue to rise, it'll get more and more interesting. So uh, there, there is some uh, some things to watch, so to speak, in the serial acquirer right now as, as people are, you know, looking at their facilities and, you know, the cost of capital just gets more expensive every day. So what is it all add up to in terms of just the, the size of sanctuary at this point? I mean, I think you'd mentioned earlier, Assets wise, you're you're at coming up on twenty five billion dollars. But what is this just in terms of advisors, in terms of like sanctuary staff? Since again, we have like the sanctuary P and L and the and the advisor P and L. Like, what what's the advisor count, and what's the what's the overall staff count at this point? Yeah, we're right around three hundred on the advisor count, and 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 that's sort of a, a little bit. Um, that, that, that's registered personnel, right? So, so you know, it may be that a team has four registered personnel and sure. one of them focuses as a CSA, but that's registered personnel. And then, you know, we've got about 130-ish, um, I feel like it grows every day, um, of, of employees that, that support that business and, and support the other businesses that, that, that we have at Sanctuary. And so, you know, all in, it's, 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 it's approaching uh, 450 in our community. Uh, mixed between employees and then obviously the advisor uh, folks who are, are more on the 1099 side. So, so I I'm curious now to hear a little bit more about the the journey it, itself of just the amount of hiring and peopling up it takes to to do what you're talking about. You know, it, it's I mean I think relative to a lot of well relative to most advisory firms, like just 130 you know support staff layer behind the scenes supporting the advisors is just is a lot of people. Uh, but then when you get down to you launched in 2018, so you're you're just coming up on a five-year anniversary. And so hiring 130 people in five years, which in practice is probably more like 175 to 200 is like <laughs> normal you. turnover that <laughs> that comes comes along the way. Like 200-ish people that have to get hired in the in the span of four or five years, you're basically talking about 
a new team member every week for five years. Like every single week, a new person comes in, which also means like at when you grow that fast, like at no point will the average employee have been there for more than 18 months, not even because you have a turnover problem. It's like if the business right. is doubling that quickly, like you have to add so many people that you 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 add more than 100% of your headcount every 18 to 24 months. So you never get to an average tenure more than 18 months uh, just because of the hiring pace and, and the doubling pace. So I guess I'm I'm just trying to understand or or visualize or if you can share more like just what does that look like in practice when that many people have to be hired and the organization just has to gear up that quickly? Yeah, you know, look when you say it that way, I'm like, how do we do it? Um, but but what we're, were you in thinking, man. <laughs> I know. Um, I should write a book. I think it'd be super interesting, you know. And, and then I, th- I think the other layer on top of that too, Michael, is like you know when you grow that fast. And, you know, what got you there won't get you there, that old saying, right? And so like, like how quickly, you know, you're pivoting, not because people are bad, but because now your company is in a different place of circle of life and they need different people and different skill sets. And, you know, as we think about where we are now, you know, uh, you know, we've got to scale the thing and we've got to continue to scale the thing. And so that requires a very different skill set than maybe the early years, which was, you know, um, uh, maybe more of a sales organization. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it's been amazing. It really has. And, you know, I, I, I think like it's one of those things that if you thought about it, you would never do it. So you just have yeah. to keep going. Um, you just have to put your head down and keep going and and really be thoughtful of what do we need to deliver a great advisor experience so they can deliver a great client experience. And, you know, what I think I've learned the most is asking myself every quarter and asking my executive leadership team, what resources do we have that aren't being utilized? Where is there, I don't want to call it waste, but but where are there investments that aren't returning or we could get a better return somewhere yeah. else, right? And and that's I think probably really important for all of us as entrepreneurs to do that frequently and regularly because you will find, yeah, we thought that we needed this, but we really hired it for an exception, and you know we either need to get rid of that exception or or or, or serve it in a different way um, because you know you, 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 you that's where you sort of mess up is when you grow so fast that you add things that you really don't need, um, and so that's been the biggest lesson learned. Um, But I I think the other part is if you get the culture right, and I think we have, and we focus on it and some people are like, what are you talking about in, you know, culture and independence, but we really do view it as a family and we really are a pretty connected group of people. It's a lot easier to meet those hiring goals because people want to join your organization and they want to be part of something. Um, And so we've really tried to focus on that. And, um, we really have some great leaders here and, and great leaders have, you know, their network of people. And so um, it's been a heavy lift, but um, it hasn't been as bad as it sounded when we sort of described, you know, what we had to build. But I mean, there's there's a real power in like truly owning as 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 a business owner, that phenomenon of what what got you here won't won't get you there. And and some of that is just kind of the business strategy and tactics need to change. And sometimes as founders and owners, it means like you have to do a different thing in in the business, right? The big one for a lot of advisors, just when you have to be 
less of an advisor and more of an advisory firm business owner because you're you start moving away from client roles and more into just management and leadership yeah. roles if you're if you're scaling up the organization. But to me, one of like I know I lived a version of this as well in some of the businesses that that we've grown and scaled the the like to me one of the hardest parts is that the whole gap of what got you here won't get you there like it happens with your people mm. where you have like great wonderful team members who do all the right things and and have great success in the role and basically the role outgrows them right like you hired a person who was great at doing a thing but now we need a person who can run a five person team who all do that thing. And sometimes people who are great at doing a thing are not great at managing people who do that thing. And so your, you know, your, your great leader who built a department ends out being an incapable leader to lead what the department becomes once they grow it to a certain point. Uh, and I, I, I find those types of challenges crop up a lot. And uh, like the faster you grow, the faster they come at you. Man, you couldn't have said that any better, Michael. And, and, and honestly, I would tell you, that's been the hardest and loneliest thing for me as a leader is knowing you're in a moment and knowing you have somebody that you like that's in a role that's incredibly important, incredibly strategic, but you know they're not the right leader for the next part of the journey and you got to make that change. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I know I, I can, I'm thinking about one particular example, but there's a lot of them where like, you know, the organization's kind of looking at you, um, but you have to have that confidence and you have to do what you think is right. And then later, a lot of times they'll come back and say, I didn't really see where you're going with that, but that was a good call um, or, or not a good call. Right. But, but, but yeah, that's really hard. And, and I think, um, you know, those that do that well and do that right. Um, I think it's a big part of their success candidly. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I see it very often with advisory firms, ironically, like it's I actually find it's it's very rarely actually the advisors that's the problem with this. It it's it's almost always the uh, the operations side of the, yeah. of the business. I find and like like nothing negative to the ops folks. Like I love I love my good operations team. But like you know, you're you're amazing right hand person who like was there with you from the beginning of the business fourteen years ago when you struck out on your own. Uh, yeah, like you know, like was your right hand person has been your right hand person all the way through, and like that was great for a point of time. But your right handed person was originally doing like scheduling, emailing, and administrative tasks, and now they're responsible for Orion and Wealthbox yeah. and four <laughs> four CSMs, four client service managers that they're supposed to manage and oversee. And you've given them the project to do the migration to uh, a new financial planning software, and like. It's not their skill set. Like you've just you've just outgrown them, uh, yep. and 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 the business ends up being bottlenecked because you really need to create a new layer of systems and process, or you need to be able to manage and and grow your operations team better. And that wonderful right hand person who's been there forever was so great when you started the business, and just literally can't get you there. Can't get you to the so next true. level. So true. The other place I see it is like I feel like like sometimes in the op tech and ops world, like people are actually afraid of implementing technology because they think it'll put them out of a job. And by not doing mm -hmm. it, they put themselves out of a job anyway because like you know eventually it is what it is, right? And so um, that has to play out. And, and 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 I always ask my team that all the time. It's like like you know you know what can we do 
to use technology to be more efficient. And you just find that certain people that they kind of block that because they're like, well, if I do this, am I going to put myself out of a job? And those people are the ones that I think are really important that you weed out of the organization because, you know, they're sort of putting their needs ahead of the organizations and, yeah. and uh, that'll kill you pretty quickly. I'm also just curious, you know, you said both there's like things we built that, that we had to get rid of and prune back. And there was also just the whole phenomenon of it doesn't really look exactly today like what you thought it was going to be when you were getting started five years ago. So I, like, take us back to the original, like what was the original, what did the original sanctuary business plan and service offering look like compared to where, where it has ended up today? You know, look, I, I think like, like, it was probably my own self-reflection, not thinking big enough. You know, I'd spent most of my career in the Midwest and, 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 you know, ran that for Merrill Lynch for many years. And so I sort of envisioned, you know, we'd be this great Midwestern firm. And as we started to build what we built, um, the demand was nationwide. And I brought in one of my partners, Vince Fertitta in Texas, and we started to grow there really quickly. And now, you know, we've had a lot of growth out in California. And so what I thought was going to be a regional business became a national business. And I think that was because, the offering that we built um, was was really what a lot of advisors were looking for that were coming out of the wirehouses. And so, you know, as you think about that, that's a whole different level of, 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 of how you're going to build a business, because, you know, if you're going to do it efficiently and profitably, you're going to have to embrace technology. You're going to have, you, you know, you needed training, you needed support, but you were spread out all over the country versus saying Chicago, Indianapolis, you know, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, whatever it may be, right? This Midwestern engine. And so we had to pivot to that quickly. And now listen, that's been the greatest thing that ever happened to us because our pool is more diverse and it's it's better and we've got talent all over the country, but it wasn't something that I, you know, anticipated, um, you know, and, and the other thing that I think I didn't anticipate was, you know, I thought the hard decision was going to be to pick the best technology. That's not been the case. Um, I think it's pretty easy to find something that's differentiating and really good technology but does it integrate well with the rest of your platform? Um, and so we've certainly had some starts and stops over the years where we've chosen a piece of technology that we were enamored by that didn't fit to our best of our platform, either via data or whatever other reasons that it might not fit. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're, you, you spend six months on something, you're like, that was a giant waste of time. It's not really the right fit for what we do. Um, and so those are some, I think, the lessons learned and some of the differentiations of that I didn't really have enough respect for. I knew we had the relationships and I knew. Um, and so as I thought about my team, you know, when I left Merrill Lynch and I started Sanctuary, everybody that I hired, Michael, came from a wirehouse because that's who I knew and trusted. Right. But but probably a year to 18 months into this, I started to quickly realize what a mistake that was. And it's not that those wirehouse people weren't really talented, but I needed people that had thrived and really knew the independent space and knew um, what independent advisors were looking for and knew what the possibilities in independent right. advisors could deliver. And so, you know, it was sort of that aha moment for me of having to repurpose my team and rechange change the team. And so we really had a diverse people that came from a lot of different backgrounds um, that could really add value to the client because, you know, the, the wirehouse team could get the people to say, yeah, I want to leave Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, wherever it was and come to Sanctuary but about six months in, when their transition were over, those advisors were looking for somebody that had lived the independent life that could make them 
you know, sort of bring the platform to life and deliver right. an improved client experience and all the things that I think independence brings and why I think it's the best platform, they needed somebody that could help them do that. And so we sort of had to recalibrate the team and rebuild it so that we delivered that. Um, and, and I just didn't see that coming. Um, maybe I should have, but I didn't. But luckily, we've done that now. We've got a really good team of people like Bob Walter and others that uh, have had a long career in independence, and they know exactly what it looks like. And more importantly, they, they know what you don't want to do um, so that you don't um, you know, get the thing off the tracks. So then how do you find the people? <laughs> you know, um, I really focus on building my network and building relationships and um, and then what I've learned to do over the last two years is just say, you know, I was looking for a COO. And so, you know, one of our marketing partners is a company called FICOM. They're great people. And um, I said, hey, guys, I'm looking for a world class COO to come in and help us, you know, really take the platform to the next level. And, um, you know, it turns out that they had a relationship from somebody that some of them used to work with at United Capital. And um, they made the introduction and, and, and then, you know, that person has their own network of people, right? And so I feel like if you can hire the right leader, um, it's easier to scale up your, your, your hiring much faster because they bring with them a reputation and a network that, that people want to join and want to enjoy. And so, you know, that's a good example of, of sort of how we found them. Um, what I haven't used as well is like headhunters. That hasn't worked for me as well. Um, you know, I feel like you're just, you know, you, you, and I, this is probably overgeneralizing it and I hope no one takes it the wrong way, but sometimes in that process, somebody's running from something, not to something. Uh -huh. And we're really hopeful at the sanctuary culture that we're bringing in teammates that are running to something. And so that's what we try to do is just use our network and get people that are excited about what we're building and they want to make it better. So I hear you on the networking end, but you know, most of us, I think, particularly in advisory firm, like founder, owner, leadership position, like calendars really full. Mo most advisors I know, uh, you know, they, as the business is growing, they spend less time networking than they used to because like life just gets really busy and teams get busy and the faster you're growing, the more, the more crazy that tends to be coming at you. So I, I guess I'm just curious, like, like literally, like how do you do yeah. <laughs> networking as a, as a busy CEO, like just how do you find the, the time and the space to do it? There's two things that I'm um, unbelievably disciplined about. Uh, well, really three. I don't miss my kids' events, so that's number one. Um, and, and that is number one, two, and three, really. Um, number two, I call one of our partners every single day. Uh, a lot of times it's on my way to the office or from the office, but I do that every single day. And then number three, once a week, I reach out to somebody that I've read about or want to get to know and have a conversation. Um, and just a lot of times it's like, hey, Michael, um, you know, my name is Jim Dixon. I'm the CEO of Sanctuary. I keep reading about you, you know, doing these things. Uh, you know, can we spend 10 minutes getting to know each other? And, and that has paid off dividends to me like no others. Uh, I just feel like I've, I've built such a broad network of problem solvers. And, and a lot of times I'll do some homework and say, hey, you know, you know, the same person I know or what have you. It's a small enough world. You can do that, particularly with LinkedIn. But I think the, the, the thing that I would just share with, with our listeners today is that it, it, the magic sauce is the discipline of doing it, right? And, and, you know, my relationships with our partners are unbelievable because I'm just calling them and say, hey, man, how you doing? You need anything? Everything going okay? Um, and, and I'm calling other people just saying, you know, listen, I'm so impressed with you. I'd like to learn more. And, and 
people don't do that very much. And so there's not much competition. And so many people that are part of the sanctuary community now started with some of those conversations. So I don't know that it's a perfect answer, but it's what I do and it works really well for me. So how long, I, I just, I'm intrigued. So how long are the partner calls? Like how long are these? You know, it's so funny. Like, like, you know, like, like a lot of times they're 15 or 20 minutes. Um, you know, how you doing? A lot of times it's probably like you with clients. In other words, it's more about how your kids are and your family and, you know, yeah. other things. Uh, and then other times when you call them, you know, cause I'm really not calling with an agenda. I'm just calling to see how they are right. and how I can help. Um, but then other times, like I, I made one the other day um, and, and my wife was like, what are you doing? Like she's texting me while I'm, while I'm driving, which I probably shouldn't say that on a podcast, but she's like, what are you doing? Cause I'm just driving around. Because what I thought was going to be a 15-minute call turned into a 45-minute call because we're talking about an M&A so opportunity. She's, she's looking like you were supposed to be home in 20 minutes. That was exactly. 20 minutes ago. So I've like looked at you online by locating your phone and you're doing loops in the neighborhood. That's, you nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, and so you never know. But, but I always just try to like not rush them, right? That, that's the one thing I try not to do. And if they've got something I can help with, and look, if it's going to be two hours, I say, listen, let's get something on the call tomorrow. We can dig deeper. I'll bring in other teammates to help. But, um, you know, that's just something I've done for a lot of years and, uh, it works for me. And, uh, I feel so, like, um, it just breaks down barriers and, and, uh, just makes you more accessible, but it also yeah. connects me closer to the business, which is really important. I think sometimes as a CEO, a founder, you know, when you launch a business, when you start it, you're really close to it. And then every time it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you get further and further away from the client and the advisor. Yeah. And I think you get really disconnected. And so this is my way of trying to stay close to it. It's not perfect, but I do feel like I, I get news pretty quickly when things aren't um, working like they should be, which allows okay, us to course so, your 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 team you know rolls out a new offering a new service like if if that didn't go well for some reason one of one of your calls in the next week or two or more yeah. than one of your calls in the next week or two is me like jim love what you guys do but like oh my gosh that rollout yes. like, I, yeah. I got some words for you and then you take that and bring it back to the team like so here's what i'm hearing <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think my team always loves that I do these calls, but but I do think it makes the company better, right? Because if I hear things three or four times over a two week period, I'm like, guys, I think we got a theme here. We gotta we gotta deal with and make better, and um, and, and they appreciate that. But but I think they're always like, oh boy, here's Jim and his calls again, right? Um, but it, it's just something that I do habitually that works really well. Even if I'm traveling, I can always pick up the phone and call somebody. And and uh, like I said, most of the time it's fifteen or twenty minutes. We're talking about you know, our lives. But, but when there is an issue that I can help with, or we can help with, it just, it just sort of brings it to the table easier and quickly. And I think more importantly, they know that we care, right? Which is a really big deal that if people just know you care, you're probably 80% ahead of most of your competition. Right. And, and then the, the, I guess like the networking calls, um, so it sounds like those may, may even be shorter or that, that could just be setting up like, Hey, just 10 minutes, it would just, you know, Hey, write about you love what you're doing. Here's a little of what I'm doing. Like, can we just spend 10 minutes connecting and just getting to know each other a tiny bit? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and it's funny because like a lot of times they're 15, 10, 15 minutes, but like a lot of times you connect and then you schedule something for an hour afterwards. And a lot of times you end up doing business together. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, those are kind of weird because it just depends and you don't know until you actually have a conversation. Uh -huh. But the good ones, the ones that are exciting are like when you connect with somebody and they're like, yeah, this is part of my tribe, right? This this man or woman understands uh -huh. what I'm trying to do and I think they can add value. And then, 
you know, we'll say, all right, how'd your calendar look? Let's get something next Tuesday. Let's pack an hour and unpack this and see if we can help each other. Um, that those are my favorites. Those are really fun. Um, and you know, like there's some where you, you know, the guy's like, well, why are you calling me? And you're like, oh, no, okay. Good luck to you. Gotta go. Right. And, you know, so yeah, just yeah, sort like, of, you know, okay. Yeah. Like if you're not into <laughs> it, that's cool. so, I mean, are you like, are you cold calling them or is this much, like yeah. you, you look mean, them up and send an email like, Hey, can we get 10 minutes on the calendar? To, to I'll do both. Um, it just depends. You know, I sort of, I love that when I was an advisor many moons ago. Um, and so I, I still do it. And, 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 you know, um, I think as I've gotten, uh, a bigger Rolodex, um, I can sort of like, when I see somebody, I can sort of see who their tribe is. And so then I'll try to look through my tribe and say, right. okay, who do I know that maybe could make this introduction or, or I'll, I'll ping somebody, you know, usually text them and say, Hey, can I use your name? I'm going to reach out to this person yeah. and reach your name. And you'd be shocked how many times be like, Oh my gosh, this is a great friend of mine. I'll tell him you're going to call. Right. And it's, just, you know, sort of that asking for advice. Um, you know, I think smart marketing is what we, what I always called it. And, uh, that's the way I do that. Um, but it, it's it's not hard. And it's high, something I would highly recommend to people if they want to build their network is just just do that. So as you just look back on this journey, like what's what surprised you the most about building an advisor platform, building this wow. business? I, I think what has surprised me the most is the demand for independence. Um, it is off the charts. Um, and I think that that is awesome. Um, but I think what's if that's one A, my one B uh, on the surprise list would be just how hard it is to build a fully functional world class platform. Um, it's just hard, and it takes a lot of different skill sets. It takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of people, and um, and so I, I think that that when you put those two things together, you know, it's why the platform business is growing fast as it is. Because if I can get the benefits of independence, the autonomy, the freedom, the flexibility tax benefits, the economic benefits, but I can have a partner that can help me build it and deliver it for my clients, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, that sort of hits the wish list button. And so um, I think that, 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 you know, that's sort of led us to where we are. And both were sort of surprises. I thought we would build this Midwestern firm and we'd have, you know, a group of, of 40 or 50 advisors that want to be a part of it. And I think the demand for that is much bigger and much larger. And um, I'm very glad that that's a surprise, but that would probably be number one. So I guess I'm just curious. I mean, you listed a lot of things around demand for independence of you know autonomy and freedom and flexibility and, and some tax benefits. Uh, like, what's the? I, I guess I'm just wondering what do you think's the primary driver of it? And control. Mindy Diamond and I talk about this. A lot, and and by the way, I give Mindy Diamond and Lewis Diamond a ton of credit. They've, you know, early on when I was building this firm, I reached out to them and said, "Hey, am I crazy?" And they're like, "No, we talk to advisors all the time." And what I don't know if you can do it, <laughs> but if you can, there will be demand. Um, and so, but I think the word that Mindy and I talk about the most is control. Um, you know, people want to control the client experience. They want to control the investment experience. And more importantly, they want to control their destiny. And if they're sitting in a warehouse today, um, they really can't do that. And, you know, it's like they're at the peril of, of this big organization that um, pushes them forward. And if on the other end of that barbell, if they're a small, independent, you know, standalone RAA um, that sets up their shingle, um, they, they don't really have control of their growth because they don't have a platform that's competitive. And so 
Um, when I think about all those different views of control, control is the word that comes to my mind that, that, that sort of explains why this crazy movement is happening and happening as fast as it is. So where was this, I guess, the surprise part? Like, I mean, you, you lived Wirehouse for 20 odd years. I mean, you have, you have seen very much seen the other side. So like, what, what made you misjudge this, that like, that it was a surprise that there was so much demand? Like what? What yeah. do you see now you couldn't see from the inside, I guess, that, that made right, this Right, right. Well, look, I, I knew there was a lot of frustration. That's why I did it. I knew that there was a, uh, a real distaste for large bureaucratic bank organizations. I knew that they questioned the leadership at many of those 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 institutions, that they'd become, you know, look, look I, th- I think if you're going to be successful in this practice, in this industry, there's got to be a three-legged stool you know, the advisor has to have a leg, the client has to have a leg, and the shareholder has to have a leg. And I think that what had happened at those warehouses were that, um, you know, candidly, the 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 legs for the advisor and the client had gotten a little wobbly or non-existent, and everything had been placed on the shareholder. And so, when we built Sanctuary, we wanted it to be a three-legged stool that was sturdy. Um, it was good for the advisor, it was good for the client, and obviously, it was good for our shareholders. Um, and and one of the things that I I think like happened. I don't know if it was a surprise, but like, like you got to have a first mover. Right. And I remember, um, the Evans May team here in Indianapolis, great friends of mine and just a world-class practice. Um, we were about six months into Sanctuary's launch and Evans May broke with us and came onto the platform. And Michael, it was like all these eyes opened up. It was like, wow, a practice that good, that high quality is mm-hmm. doing this. And then um, the next group of bigger teams looked and the next group of bigger teams looked. So it was like somebody had to go first and break the glass. And look, there had been some really big teams do it, but they sort of did it alone with their own ADV. Um, and, and this whole platform concept was like a lot of people in that warehouse were like, I want to be independent. I do want control, but I don't want to do all the stuff. Right. right. And, I, I, and I don't know how to do all this stuff. And so the fact that we could build it and then deliver it, um, it, it, it and then then really good teams started to come on the, the platform that were world-class financial planners and even better people, it just sort of blossomed, right? And I, I didn't necessarily see that, um, you know, to the point now where we're bringing on 20 teams a year and about $10 billion, um, in new AUM, Um I just didn't didn't see it, and and I guess if I had to blame myself for anything, it would be not thinking big enough. Um, but that was a surprise that once you got that momentum, that the avalanche of high quality advisors were just waiting for a, a path to be built that they could have high confidence in that that would deliver the experience that they said they were going to deliver. So they didn't put their clients through a, a um, you know sort of a rough path. And once they saw four, five, six, ten really high quality teams not only move, but have great success and have a great client experience, their confidence to do it was just much higher than if they've never went. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh man, I'll never forget it. Um, we've all got one, right? But, um, you know, one of the things that, that we realized early on, um, in 2018 was one of the challenging thing for us was to bring over teams that used a lot of third party managers because you had to you had to access a TAMP, which was really expensive. And then their manager costs when they were leaving a warehouse were really low. And so it was almost impossible to get that. And so we attempted to build our own TAMP, not a sponsored TAMP, but our own TAMP with the technology. Um, and that was a disaster. Um, luckily, 
um, no, no, no clients were impacted and we aborted the mission before we, um, we put anybody in harm's way. But I'll never forget that night uh, when I spoke to one of my partners and uh, we realized if we didn't pivot left pretty quickly, um, you know, that, that, that there was just, it was unsustainable risk. And, and uh, I'll remember that forever as our low point and also a proud point because the team pivoted very quickly and delivered something that's pretty amazing. And now we're at a great spot. But I remember that day going, is this going to put us out of business? I know we've all had those moments, but that was mine and one I'll never forget. So I, got, I just was trying to understand what, like, what was the blow up or blocking point? I mean, just there. Well, we tried to do it a lot of firms that have built tam- tamps. Like that's that's out there. That's a model. Like what was what so, was not working or blow, blowing up in your your version of it that you had to like hit the abort button? Well, I, th- I think what was we were trying to do the technology part of it, and um, we're not a technology company. Um, and so that was a mistake and the technology, you know, wasn't working well in volatile markets, you know, and that was during the, you know, around the time of COVID and some of that volatility swings, like, listen, if you, if you miss a trade and you don't get the whole trade batch, right, because of a technology issue, um, you know, that's a million dollar error. (laughs) Um, and, and you, you know, you can't do that. Right. And so quickly, um, being able to pigeon. And, and I remember, um, you know, adhesion was our partner that came in and was, was able to convert us very quickly. And, um, you know, at, at economics that made sense for us kind of saved the day. Um, that was a really big deal, but it was also an inflection point because it made me realize like, okay, we're not a technology company. We're a platform and we need to partner with technology companies who are way further along because, you know, our advisors expect us to have a polished um, product and service and solution and trying to build it on their face isn't going to work. Um, and, and it was just a, a, a big learning. We built it because we thought we could get better economics and pass it along to the advisor um, to make it work. But the reality was uh, we just weren't ready to do that. And there was a better way to do it, which is what we've done now. Interesting. I, I do find there's an interesting tendency and drive with a lot of advisory firms as they get to a certain size and just they they got a little more free cash flow and want to invest in the business of this idea of we can build some of our own tech like we all see the flaws in the platforms that we use in the the tech vendors that we use uh but then you actually go try to build your own it's like wow that is a lot more expensive than i expected for not getting as much out of it as i'd i'd anticipated because you know Every dev shop you ask will tell you they can build it fairly quickly and inexpensively. Exactly. Like, and yes. Then, then you get to execution and the cost overruns. Like, oh, okay. Yep, you nailed it. So, anything else that I guess, like you, you wish you'd done differently, or I suppose at a core level, just like what do you know now? You wish you could go back and tell you from five years ago when you were in your you know, uh, garden leave time off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about um, this thing and, and getting ready to launch. I think it would tell myself, you know, like a, a letter to my future self that what you say no to will be more important than what you say yes to. And I think when you're trying to launch a firm and you're trying to build it, and even in the early stages, when you have on new capital partners, you know, there's this pressure to grow, there's this pressure to keep going. Um, and so you really have to be thoughtful around what you say yes to, because if you say yes to too many exceptions, your business becomes a giant exception and a giant one off and it's not scalable. Um, and so I think that, that that's probably been the biggest lesson learned for me is it, it, it's really important that you say no to things that don't fit 
and you have to trust that you know the law of abundance is really really alive and well and and that there's going to be plenty of things that do fit and and so um, that's really been probably for me over the last six or eight months something that I'm really focused on is is you know we're all competitive we all want to bring on that next new client or that next new partner firm and so say yeah we we, we think we can do that but if it doesn't fit just say no and move on that that's probably been number one for me so guess I'm 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 curious if you can like share without any inappropriate details like what what were the two like most regrettable <laughs> I granted that exception and I really shouldn't have and had to walk it back later like just where did this hit in practice yeah you know so 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 you know hey can you customize this for me and you say yes as part of the business development process but then you know, you don't really realize until six months later that your operations team is spending, you know, six hours a week on something that's actually getting, you no incremental revenue or profitability. And uh-huh. then you begin to multiply those little things, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times. And all of a sudden, you know, you're there. And so for what we did was, you know, now we have a worksheet that when a new, new, new team joins us or a new decision is made, um, you know, we will, we'll sort of go through that process and say yes or no as a group. So the, you know, the operations team, the platform team, the compliance team, you know, that they can articulate to the business development team, Hey, if you say yes to that, here's what it means to us. And we're not willing to do that. Right. So it's more of a, a, a sort of uniform decision. And, and, you know, you sort of, you know, it, it's easy when you have 10 firms to say, yeah, we can do that. But as you have 80 firms, it's not so easy anymore. And as you have 100, it's really not, you know. And so there, there's just those little things that weren't bad decisions, but they just add up. And so and so the restructuring became, if if our business development team wants an exception, they got to basically call, call a meeting with operations platform and compliance and get everybody's input and sign off that That's right. we're, we're That's not, right. not going to make something too, too miserable. Like you can still get an exception, but you're right, going to have to absolutely. make a much better case with the people who have to deal with the consequences of business developments compromises. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So any other advice you would give to other advisors that maybe are have built advisory firms and are thinking about whether they want to be more of a platform offering for other advisors. Just I see this more and more firms grow to a certain size or like I, I've made I've hired the staff, I've made this infrastructure. I can support the three or five or ten advisors that we've got at the firm. Like we're trying to grow and hire more. It's like, hey, I could feel like work with some firms up the street as their platform provider. Like I've got all the infrastructure and the tech now. Like sign up sign them up locally. Uh or sometimes even even broader than locally. Like just, I'm wondering any other advice you give for advisors that maybe have built a firm and are thinking about moving in more of the platform end of either what to focus yeah, on? Yeah, I think the advice I would give them, Michael, would be that it takes a tremendous scale. So it's not something I would advise that you just stick your foot in 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 the um, you know in the in the water because it doesn't work with four or five. You know, I mean, we're truly at 80 really big partner firms and 25 billion. And I feel like we've just hit our point of return um, where we're now it's scalable and now it's, it's profitable. And, um, and so I think like this thought that, you know, we can just add three or four firms that are like us is, is probably um, you really want to dig deep and make sure that, that you can do that. Cause it's a lot harder than you think. Now that same group, I, I don't mean to be negative because I think that same group 
can do a full acquisition and, and instead of, you know, um, you know, they, they, mm. they put them through an entire process where they look and feel like your firm and then it's a merger and you have a great client service model. And um, I think that works. But to me, that's not a platform. That's building right. a firm. Yeah, that's- and, and I think that understanding those differences are really those those differences are really important. And I think for most advisors, you know, that acquisition is going to be a lot better return on your time and your investment than building a platform is, just because of the amount of scale that it takes. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. Just one of the themes I've long observed is the word success means very different things to different people. And so you know, you've built what's certainly an incredibly successful platform is you you know cross 25 billion and come up on 100 partner firms but how do you define success for yourself at this point I define success through my relationships and we spoke a little bit about that earlier about my phone calls but what I'm most proud of about what we built in sanctuary is I really feel like I've got hundreds and hundreds of new friends that I really like and care about and to me that's really cool um, because you know we all have a limited amount of time on this earth and uh, so it's really important to me that I enjoy not only what I'm doing, but who I'm doing it with. Um, and the fact that we've been able to build a firm like Sanctuary that has grown like it has with people that I like and trust, to me, that's success. And so I'm really proud of that. Um, and if that changed, you know, I'd be really hard for me because I think that, that you know, our relationships are really who we are and what we have and uh, people matter. And so um, you know, whether you call that the relationship, the culture or whatever it is, I think I call it the friendships. Um, those are pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for joining us on the financial advisor success podcast. Michael it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.